your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 as we continue in our study of God's Word and walking through the Gospel of Luke together. If you were with us last Lord's Day, we looked back on some things we had learned from Luke 12, and again, how Jesus has preached very clearly here about the judgment of God and the need for repentance. And then in the beginning of Luke 13, we looked at how in response to that call to repent, uh, there were some there that just deflected. They, they pointed the finger at what they perceived to be God's judgment on others rather than recognizing the judgment that was coming to them. And so then in responding and in further talking about judgment and our need for repentance, Jesus shared a, a parable of a fig tree in We talked about the lessons that we can learn from that parable, that genuine repentance should indeed bear fruit, that God is merciful towards sinners, and that the opportunity to repent, recognize our sin and repent of it, will expire when the judgment of God comes. And now, as we continue in Luke's gospel, we see an example of these very things. We see an example of the the fruit that comes from genuine repentance and genuine faith. We see the mercy of God, and, and we see as well that that opportunity to hear this message and respond to it will indeed expire for some of, from all of us at some point. And so we're going to pick up today in our study of Luke 13 in verse 10. And out of reverence for God's word, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand together as we read the word of God together. And this is what God's word says. Now, when he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, You are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You would pray with me. Father, on this cold and somewhat dreary morning, help us not to be cold towards you. As we see in this passage, two very different responses to the working of your word and the life of your people. Those who are overwhelmingly rejoicing and and glorifying you in response and 
and those who are angry about it and, and cold towards it. Help us to be those who rejoice. That Help us, Lord, and enlighten us today. Show the light of the Gospel to us. Shine it into our hearts that, that we too might glorify You in response to Your Word rather than being cold to it. This is a work of Your Holy Spirit and we ask for it to be done now as we walk through Your Word together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're all familiar with the phrase, they grow up fast. It's a phrase that has been in conversations I've had with, with many of you as you've stood there and held your young children. It's a phrase that many of us have had as we look back on our families. It's one that I was thinking of just this last week as I was at the driving permit office with our youngest as she got her driver's permit. And just that week had received a, a text message and a, a group text we have with our family from our oldest son reminding us that it was less than 100 days until he gets married. A marriage which will take place two days after our second born Vivian graduates from college. <laughs> And just yesterday, in that same group message, receiving a, a message from our uh, third-born, Anna Claire, who a couple of states away yesterday qualified to be a, an All-American in track and field. All of these things are reminders to me that they do indeed grow up fast, because I can remember not so long ago, about 13 and a half years ago, when we pulled into Bloomfield for the first time and moved here, they were all children. They were small children. I can remember as small children, we always had a, a habit, a ritual with our children that each night, Sandy and I would go and sit there in their bed with them. We would read books to them. And, and when they got old enough, they would read those books to us. But before they could read to us, when we could read to them, uh, one of their favorite to my favorite types of books to read were those pop-up books. And you know pop-up books, the books that when you, you, you turn the page, the, the story comes right there in your face. It's a, a picture. You, you, you read about this story, you describe this story, but then you turn the page and, and there it is, right before you, fully illustrated. I, I loved those pop-up books and I, I love that in many ways that's exactly what God's Word does for us. And that's what Jesus does in His ministry. So often we see Jesus uh, describing and explaining and preaching and teaching. And then you turn the page and this illustration's just right there before you. Uh, sometimes it's in the form of a parable that describes the very thing He taught. Sometimes the parable is given first and then He teaches. And then sometimes it's a real life example that's right there in front of you, that you might see God's Word being unpacked and what it looks like in real life. And that's exactly what I believe we see in today's passage. Jesus has preached to the people about repentance. He has preached about the fruit that comes from repentance. He's preached about the mercy of God. He's given a parable through that parable of the victory to explain these very things. And now we turn the page and we see this picture in front of us. Yeah, this woman with this disabling spirit that had left her crippled, hunched over, unable to stand up straight, and yet Lord's Day, Sabbath after Sabbath, week after week, she, she's there, 
hearing the word of God and praising God for who he is, despite her suffering. We see then, as this story unfolds, this story that's right there in front of us, these these principles, these points that we looked at last Lord's Day in that parable of the fig tree, that, that, that genuine faith not only produces repentance, but that that repentance then bears fruit. That, that, that God is merciful towards us and towards sinners. And that there's a day that comes when this opportunity to respond, it, it expires with the judgment of God. We see how each of these things is in this picture that's before us. Because we have before us now in this picture an example of one who I believe has genuine faith and fruit of that faith and those who do not. And so as we walk through this passage today, I, I pray that each of us will consider which one of those are we today. Do we indeed have a genuine faith that produces fruits? Or are we like the ones we see in this picture who do not? Who produce a fruit, but a, a very different kind of fruit. And so we're going to walk through this passage and, and look then at what we learn now, beginning with that first point I put before you, number one, we see here an example that genuine faith produces perseverance and long-suffering. Now, we know in Galatians 5, the, the fruit of the Spirit, but Galatians 5 is not the only fruit of the Spirit. There is much fruit that comes, and we see that fruit throughout the Scripture. We see, for example, that as those who have genuine faith, we are called to show mercy as God has shown us mercy, that we are called to forgive as God has forgiven us, that these are not works of the flesh. These are fruits of the Spirit of God working within us. And what we see here, I believe, is an example of one who among the fruit that is produced in their life from their faith is the fruit of how they have responded to suffering in their life. The perseverance, the long-suffering. Again, we see it as we begin this passage, as the picture comes before us. Verse 10, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. We see in the ministry of Christ this example often up until this point. As we look further in this and other Gospels, we find that this is the last recorded time that Jesus will be teaching in a Sabbath. And whether that's due to a lack of invitation moving forward or the declining of those invitations moving forward, we see, I believe, part of that judgment of God coming on the people of God, that their response and the way they've reacted as Jesus has come and taught, He will continue to teach, He will continue to preach. But this will be the last time, as we have recorded before us, that He does this in a synagogue. But he has come to this synagogue as he has come to others by way of invitation. There was a ruler of the synagogue, and among his responsibilities was to line up those who would come, who would uh, read the Word of God, who would pray, and those who would teach the Word of God. And so he has invited now Jesus to come and teach. And so now what we have before us, as we understand the fullness of the gospel, is we have the Word of God teaching the Word of God. It's an amazing thing to consider that we have the living Word of God in flesh standing there teaching the revealed Word of God to God's people. And among those people, we have some who receive that Word in very different ways because we read of one who receives it and many who receive it and rejoice and we read of those who are indignant towards it. Not simply because of what Jesus said, but because of what Jesus did. We read here that there among the people who have come was a woman 
We read in verse 11, we had a disabling spirit for 18 years. That this disabling spirit, Luke describes to us, Luke, as you'll remember, the, the physician, he tells us that it left her in a position that we perceive as being bent over, that there seems to be some fusion there in her back. She's unable to straighten her back. She's unable to stand up. We don't read described before us that this was necessarily a, a situation where she was demon-possessed. We've seen Jesus encounter those who were demon-possessed, and that brought on them a physical infliction. And in those situations, as they are healed, that there's a demon that is removed. But in this situation, I think we see something more like what we see in the, the book of Job, that there's certainly demonic activity that has brought about this physical infliction, but it's not so much that she's oppressed or possessed by a demon is that somehow this this demonic activity 18 years before which is not described to us has brought on her this physical affliction and so i don't think we need to dwell on how exactly that came about because what god has put before us is what's happening now to her and that the context that she's in he tells us it's been 18 years that she's been suffering under this affliction. And where do we find her 18 years into this suffering? We find her on this Sabbath day among the people of God at the synagogue, worshiping God, praising God, hearing from the Word of God. Jesus refers to her in this passage as a daughter of Abraham. This was a reference in the Gospels to those who had genuine faith. The indication here is that, that she is indeed a believer, that what God has revealed through His Word, she has received and she has accepted and she believes. And so despite her affliction, despite this infirmity, despite this suffering, she comes Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath to be among the people of God, to hear from the Word of God. And remember what we have talked about before and even talked about last Lord's Day. Remember how she would have been perceived by the Jewish people in this day. That the common belief among the Jews at this time was that for someone to suffer under an affliction like this, that this was an indication of the judgment of God on them. So again, when you have the disciples with Jesus and they encounter a blind man, their first question is, why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And so as she comes in with this affliction, an affliction that would have been very recognizable to all who saw her, as she would make her way through the town, a very difficult path likely given her situation. As she would make her way into the synagogue and, and look for a place to sit on a bench or even find a place in a back corner where she could stand against a wall, people would look at her not with a welcoming eye. <laughs> not saying, we're, we're so glad that you made it to the synagogue today. We've been praying for you. So she wouldn't have walked in and, and had the, the ruler of the synagogue stand up and open up the bulletin and say, well, don't, don't forget to pray for our, our dear sister who's made it to the synagogue with us today. You know, she would have met, been met with scowls and people looking at her in judgment. Because what they would have perceived about her condition is that, that she's this way because she's a great sinner. 
That the greater the sin, the greater the suffering. And she's been suffering with this for 18 years. So she must have done something major. And at this point, she's not repented of it. And she's not turned back to God. She shows up to the synagogue, but this is all for show because we know what's really going on with her because we can see the judgment of God on her. This is how she would have been viewed. And yet the indication we have before us from Luke's gospel is these things were not a deterrence in her life. She came there to worship there. You think about that for a moment. You think about our our modern day situation, our, our modern conveniences, how, how much more it is, how much more convenient it is for us to make our way to church, both in transportation, both in the, the climate. You know, we, we come into this temperature-controlled room that some of you remind me of often is way too cold and others remind me of often that it's way too hot. We sit on these pews with padding, we come into this environment that we make much effort to make so comfortable for people. That's not the environment she was coming into. And yet she wasn't coming there for comfort. She was coming there to hear from the Lord and to praise Him. And now in this day of comfort we have, you think about how much less than what she endured keeps us from gathering together. You think about how many excuses we come up with and, and how quick we are to neglect the Lord's day in gathering with God's people. And that's not the picture we see here. J.C. Ryle said it this way, sickness was no excuse with her for tearing from God's house. In spite of suffering and infirmity, she found her way to the place where the day and the word of God were honored where the people of God met together. And truly, she was blessed in her deed. She found a rich reward for all her pains. She came sorrowing, but she went home rejoicing. We see here that had she used this as an excuse, had she stayed home, had she neglected gathering with the people of God on that Sabbath day, all that she would have missed out on, but she didn't miss out on these things. Because she was faithful. So that we get to verse 12 and we read, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Friends, we, we see here again a, a, a picture before us of the picture that Jesus gave us in the parable of the fig tree. She is not a barren tree that produced no fruit. There is fruit of her faith through her long suffering, through her perseverance, through her coming Sabbath after Sabbath. She now has received the gift of God and the healing of God and she is rejoicing in that. We see here an example, a picture that genuine faith indeed does produce fruit. And not only that, the second observation there that genuine faith produces compassion towards the suffering of others. And so now we, we, we turn the page in our book and we're, we're met with a, another picture, a different picture, a fruit of a person's heart, but it's altogether a different kind of fruit because we read in verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Now just imagine for a, a moment what it was this ruler had expected to happen when he invited Jesus to come to the synagogue that day. Because again, traditionally, this would have been by invitation. <laughs> it's not that Jesus crashed the party. It's not that Jesus just showed up and started teaching. This ruler had invited him, and likely he had invited him because he had heard of the works of the miracle-working rabbi. And perhaps he had attended a synagogue service at a neighboring community, and he had seen Jesus teach. And he had seen what we have seen as we've studied through Luke's Gospel. That people are literally trampling over one another to come and hear Jesus teach. And perhaps attendance had been a bit low at the synagogue. Perhaps it hadn't been what it once was. And perhaps this ruler of the synagogue was in the midst of trying to launch a, a synagogue expansion committee and wanted to build on and, and wanted more people coming. And what better way to get more people there than to invite this miracle-working rabbi to come and to teach. And he had brought such crowds with him. And you can imagine the smile on his face as Jesus accepts this invitation, as Jesus comes on the Sabbath, as Jesus begins to teach, and all these people are flocking in to the synagogue. People who hadn't been in months, maybe years. Levi and his wife, and as he sees Levi and his wife, he thinks about uh, what a, a great business Levi has and how much money Levi has and how Levi's one who could really help with this synagogue expansion project. So he's going to make sure he finds him a, a really nice seat on the bench right there in front where he can see and hear Jesus. Maybe as this ruler is working his way back there towards the door to meet Levi and his wife and these others, these people of prominence, that smile turns to a bit of a scowl as then he sees her. This hunch-over woman suffering under the judgment of God. Maybe he shakes his head and thinks, of all Sabbaths, why is she here? And maybe he, or maybe he gives instructions to others to make sure she doesn't come sit up front. Let's, let's just put her in the back somewhere. We, we don't want that to be a distraction. I, I don't want that to taint the reputation of my synagogue to all these guests who are here with us today. We don't know for sure what his expectations are, but we certainly can tell a bit about them by the way he responds because as much as he may wanted to have hidden this woman with her affliction from others, he couldn't hide her from Jesus. And so Jesus, as he is teaching the Word of God again, that the Word of God teaching the Word of God, he, he sees this woman, this, this believer, this daughter of Abraham. He, he invites her to come up front. She, she makes her way through this packed synagogue, past Levi and his wife and so many others. She comes forward. She's on full display. And this ruler of the synagogue, he, he is... Filled with anger. And not only does Jesus invite her up, Jesus touches her. We've, we've talked in the past about this, how if she was viewed by others as being unclean, immediately now, in their eyes, Jesus is unclean. 
But Jesus wasn't unclean. And Jesus has the ability to touch those who are, and he makes them clean. And so she is freed from this affliction. And we would expect when something like this happens for the people of God to rejoice because they've witnessed the word of God doing the work of God. And while many did rejoice, this man did not. He's angry. He's upset. He's making accusations against Jesus. How, how dare you? He's making accusations to the people. How dare you? There's six days of the week for work to be done. This is work. This work should not be done on the Sabbath. Come on those days to be healed. Friends, you can read every word of every verse for every chapter of every book of the Old Testament. You can read it in your English translation. You can study the original languages. You will not find a prohibition given by the Lord our God against healing on the Sabbath. That this was something that the Pharisees and others had, had added to the Word of God. We, we saw this when we studied in chapter 6 after they are looking at Jesus in condemnation for what they perceived to be work that he was doing in a grain field. Then when he, he, he has a man, an encounter, another Sabbath day in another synagogue, they're, they're just sitting there in judgment waiting to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Again, no prohibition in God's word, but a prohibition in their eyes because they viewed this as work. And so notice what Jesus does here. That the word of God looks at these men who had added to the Word of God and were indignant because they saw what they perceived to be a violation of their regulations. And so as the Word of God does the work of God to correct this, what does he do? He goes right back to the Word of God. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. So he's not just speaking to this man. He's speaking to the Pharisees who had gathered. He's speaking to these other religious leaders. He's speaking to these others that while they may not have voiced their anger and indignation, their hearts are in the same place. He answered them, him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be lucid from this bond on the Sabbath day. Hey, he points towards the Word of God and he points towards their hypocrisy by saying, listen, you, you know that God is a merciful God and in His mercy, God in His Sabbath law, He makes provision for your animals. If you untie an ox and take it to water. That's work. <laughs> that might be some of the hardest work you do all week, especially if it's a stubborn ox. And you untie these other animals and you take care of them. There, there's things that God has put in His law, in His commands, to, to show compassion and mercy towards your animals. <laughs> Why can't you show that mercy and compassion towards people? It's a sad day when we show more compassion for an animal than we do a person. 
I was going over my sermon earlier this week, and I told Sandy I was going to say it's a sad day when we show more compassion towards a homeless dog than we do a homeless person. But she said I'd get tore up on Facebook and not say it, so I took it out of my notes. I love animals. I've got an 80-pound sheep-a-doodle named Augie, and I'm his favorite human on the earth. I love my dog. And at the same time, my dog's not very smart. And he will do the same dumb thing over and over again. And, and I still feed him, <laughs> and I still take care of him, and I still spend more money on treats for that dog than I spent on candy for my kids when they were little. And, and it, it comes naturally to an extent. Like, I, I want to do so. And yet I can look on the condition of some people and, and not feel that same compassion. I can look on some and think, well, you're in that place because of what you did. I, I can look on people in judgment, and yet I don't usually look on my dog in judgment. Just my dog. <laughs> and Jesus is, is making a point here. He's saying, listen, you, you, you can't, they, these aren't even their pets. They're, they're, they're not going to Petco and buying a sweater for their ox at Christmas time. They, these are just their animals. They, they serve a purpose. There's, a, there's an efficiency here and a commerce here. He's saying, and yet you, you have more compassion in your heart for this animal than you have for those who are indeed created in the image of God. And this should bring conviction on them and on us. It should convict us when we, when we look down on the condition of another person and yet we're so quick to care for an animal. He points out what is evident here to us at this point, that, that this woman and her perseverance and her long-suffering, there's, there's a genuine fruit of faith. But for these men who profess themselves to be such righteous men who were looked up to as the religious leaders in their community, that the fruit of their life was not a fruit of genuine faith. And so in doing that, he brings upon them shame. But among those who genuinely believe, he brings genuine rejoicing, which brings us to this concluding point, number three. The genuine faith should lead us to rejoice and praise God. And so all this has taken place in the synagogue that day. It's gone very differently than this ruler would have expected. And when it went differently than he expected, he stands up and, and he thinks that he's going to admonish this rabbi, Jesus, and yet he is the one who's admonished and he's the one along with others that are put to shame. But among those who genuinely believe, they rejoice. The Word of God spoke. The Word of God. And those who were indeed believers in the Word, they rejoiced as they saw the Word produce the work. And friends, this is exactly what we are invited to do each and every Lord's Day. We, we gather together in this place. We, we gather to hear the Word and to celebrate the work. 
And that work isn't always the work we expect. The results aren't always what we hope for. And yet, God's Word is clear. We, we rejoice not just in what we perceive to be our blessings, we, we rejoice in our sufferings. And, and that's what we gather in part to do. So that, so that when we gather, we can share among one another testimonies of God's goodness. God's goodness in our joys and God's goodness in our pains. We rejoice in the work of God. I'll share just one brief testimony of that work with you this morning. As many of you know, Six weeks ago this Sunday, I was laying in a hospital bed the day before I'd had emergency surgery on my brain to relieve a large brain bleed. And that immediately afterwards, according to my family, I seemed to feel very well. But in the days that followed, I didn't feel very well at all. And I don't remember much of those days. And so much of this comes to you as testimonies they have given as they're now sharing with me. But something I, I do remember is that According to them, often the doctors and nurses and specialists would come in and ask me a series of questions, and then the days that followed, my speech was incoherent. I couldn't put together a sentence. It was just gibberish, and, and that was scary to them. I remember in particular a moment that was scary for me. When I was coherent, a, a doctor and a team would come in, and they asked me if I could share a favorite quote, and, and knowing I was a pastor, they asked if I could share with them a favorite verse. And I couldn't do it. I've been ministering God's word for three decades and I couldn't put together a verse of scripture. I, humorously, I put together my own verse, <laughs> a combination of like five different ones and, and they just nodded along because they didn't know the Bible. <laughs> but Sandy reminded them, no, that's, that's not it at all. I remember in the days that followed thinking about that, and I've thought much about it since, and being scared. And how can I be a pastor if I can't even quote the Bible? Well, friends, today I can quote the Bible. And God's taken what was just a mumbled message, gibberish in my head, and He's made my thinking clear. So that I can stand before you today and I can quote passages like Romans 3.23 that Reminds us of our condition, every one of us. That we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, that the wages of that sin is death. Romans 5.8, that reminder of the great mercy and grace of God, that God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 and 10, that tells us if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be Saved. He takes this, this cold, distant heart that on its own might have compassion for a dog but doesn't have compassion for others. And he makes it alive and he changes it. So that Romans 10.13 that, that, that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. I have no doubt that that ruler of the synagogue could quote scripture after scripture from the Old Testament. Being able to quote scripture doesn't save us. Believing in it does. And so maybe you're here this morning, you, you've heard those passages and others quoted often. Maybe you've memorized them yourself. The question is, do you believe? Are you rejoicing today in the work of God? 
Or do you sense within your heart a coldness, a distance? You look around the room as people sing these words based on the Word of God that celebrate the work of God, and yet you, you're cold towards them. It may be that as much as you've heard these things and you've said these things, you've yet to believe these things. And the invitation today isn't just to listen and hear. It's to come and to see and to believe that you might too rejoice in that which God has done. And so we're going to offer an opportunity now for you to do that very thing, for you to rejoice, to trust, and to believe. You would stand together as I pray for us as we come to this time of invitation.